Thanks for listening to the Valley Point Church Podcast. We hope it's a blessing to you. Welcome back to our series this month called God, a Moral Monster. And that series title is a question, not a statement here at Valley Point Church. We have no doubt about the goodness of God, but this is a wonderful thing for us to investigate. And so we're just asking the question based on some things that we read and observe, particularly in the Old Testament, the older portion of the Bible. We're just looking at some things that sometimes make us question the goodness of God. Last week, we asked the question, is God, is Yahweh angry? And we discovered that, yes, Yahweh does get angry, but he's always legitimately angry over sin or oppression or injustice or evil. He has cause to be angry and always legitimately angry. But the other thing we discovered is that when you walk through scripture, the corpus of what is written here points to God being very patient. So yes, Yahweh does get angry, always legitimately angry, but he is described as very patient with all of us, which is good news. Before we dive into our content for today, I also want to review what I discussed last week, just in terms of the names of God used in the Bible. The primary name used of God in the Old Testament is the Hebrew name Yahweh. There are other names used of God, but predominantly Yahweh is what we find when we read the name of God in the Old Testament. It's the personal name of God, Yahweh. In the New Testament, the primary name of God is Jesus, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua. We call him Jesus. In the New Testament, he's also called Christ or Lord, but predominantly we find the name Jesus in the New Testament. Also a personal name of God, which is a great discovery when diving into scripture, Yahweh and Jesus, these are personal names, which tells us that God wants to be on a first name basis with his creation. And that is also great news for us. Now, I don't believe that Yahweh and Jesus are different gods. They are the same God. There is only one God, but we find these different names used in scripture. And so we will use those names throughout the series. Here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you to take out your talk notes now and grab a pen. And I would encourage you to begin filling in some of these blanks as we move through our time together. Here's our big idea for today. Your best spiritual year. Here's what it involves. It involves recognizing that all people are made in God's image. Your best spiritual year involves recognizing and acknowledging that all people, every single person we could ever encounter, they are all made in the image of God. I want to ask and answer the question today, is Yahweh... And again, we're thinking primarily about the God of the Old Testament in the books from Genesis to Malachi. Is Yahweh 
racist? Is God racist? Well, I believe the short answer to that is no, he is not racist in any way, but this is a question that demands an answer. Unfortunately, racism today is still dominating headlines. And I don't think that's a surprise to anyone here. It seems that for every step forward that we take as people groups in terms of racial reconciliation and improving on how we relate to one another, for every step forward, it seems that there are two or even three steps in the opposite direction. It's sad. And I believe that racism deeply hurts Yahweh. I believe that. And when you walk through scripture, I believe you discover this, that racism deeply hurts and offends Yahweh. I think the same should be true of all of us. Whenever we see racism, it should deeply hurt us. It should deeply offend us to the point where we act and we choose to do something about it. Let's define our terms just so we have a basic understanding. I think racism can be defined as the doctrine that one person's people group is superior to another. That's kind of how you can define racism. And so we have to ask, is Yahweh racist? Does he feel that one particular people group is superior to another? Is Yahweh racist? And why are we even asking this question about Yahweh? Well, I think it's because you come across different passages of Scripture, and I'm just going to share a few with you that are kind of disturbing. And again, I shared with you when we launched this series, often I have people come to me and say, you know, I'm reading through the Old Testament and it's just hard to handle. There is a lot of tough sayings and it doesn't always make sense and there's blood and violence and we come across that today and it makes you wonder, is Yahweh racist? Here's Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16. In those towns that the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession, destroy every living thing. Then verse 17 goes on to clarify, you must completely destroy the Hittites, the Amorites, and these are just people groups now, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Kind of disturbing. Destroy every living thing, completely destroy. It's in the Bible. It's part of what we read here. How about Joshua chapter 6? Verse 20, it says, when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. And then here's verse 21. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, goats, and donkeys. Kind of disturbing, and it's in Scripture. They completely destroyed. There's another passage that we find in 1 Samuel chapter 15. It says, One day Samuel the prophet said to Saul, the king of Israel, It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. 
This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. Now, I think you read stuff like that and go, wow, wow, that's really disturbing and doesn't sound like a loving God. As a matter of fact, this sounds very messed up. And what do we do with this? It's in scripture. It's in the Bible. We can't just ignore it. Last week, I talked to you about Marcion, a first century church leader who thought that the Old Testament God was an illegitimate kind of God because of this stuff. And so he just ripped out these passages. He just discarded the Old Testament and said, let's focus on Jesus in the New Testament because he's kind and loving and passionate. And that's the type of God we should be honoring and worshiping. But this Old Testament God, he's angry and maybe even racist. That's what Marcion said. Just take these passages out of scripture. Well, we're not going to do that because it's here. We're going to come to an understanding this morning that I believe will be helpful. But is God's command, because it's here, is God's command to wipe out people? An example of racism and ethnic cleansing? We talk about this quite a bit here at Valley Point Church. Context and culture. Context and culture. Context and culture. In terms of context, you have to get the whole story, what's actually being discussed and what is actually happening. And you also have to look at culture because there is some uniqueness to a culture that is very different than ours. And so context and culture, when we begin to dive into that and understand, I believe it gives us a better picture of what's happening. So with that in mind, context and culture, It's really important for us to know that because you can pick on verses and come to some wrong conclusions. So context and culture, with that in mind, I believe an investigation of war and ancient Near East exaggeration rhetoric, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. So looking at war in the ancient Near East culture and also this exaggeration rhetoric, I believe will help us provide and give some context. So welcome to Sunday morning. We're going to talk about war. Sounds great, doesn't it? Now, here's what I want to do to make sense of this. I want to share seven thinking points with you. Now, some of you just heard the word seven and said, oh my goodness, we're never going to get out of here today because normally I only have two or three. Well, I have a few more today because again, I want to give context to war in the ancient Near East, and also this exaggeration rhetoric. So I have seven thinking points. We're not going to be here all day. I'm going to try to fly through these. I would encourage you to fill in some of these blanks as we understand context and culture. All right, number one, war was a way of life in the ancient Near East. It happened, and it happened frequently. At this stage in Israel's history, war was a matter of survival. That doesn't make it right or wrong. And everybody's got a different view and a different opinion of war. This doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just reality. 
And one of the great things that we have in Scripture is that it gives us a historical account of God working in and through his people. And so this is included, and we just have to start out understanding that war was a way of life in the ancient Near East. Secondly, the conquest of Canaan was probably less dramatic and widespread than what we assume. It wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East for them to use what is termed as exaggeration rhetoric. And you see this in Scripture. You also see it in ancient writings outside of Scripture. Exaggeration rhetoric, using terms like utterly destroy and completely destroy, wipe out a nation, is exaggerated language and probably not the way it actually happened. We use exaggeration language today, in particular with sports, don't we? We killed that team. We destroyed that team. We buried that team. Well, that's all exaggerated language. The team wasn't exactly killed. They weren't destroyed, literally. They weren't buried. That's an example of exaggeration rhetoric that speaks to winning, and I believe that's exactly what we find in the ancient Near East. We have examples of this kind of language outside of Scripture with the ancient Egyptian kings, the Hittite kings, as well as the Assyrians. It was something that they used that they understood. It spoke to winning. And we also know this. The Canaanites, these different people groups that we read about, where God said, destroy them, they were not completely destroyed. They weren't. We know that because at the end of the book of Joshua, he is about to die, he's going to pass on from the scene, and he gives a farewell speech. And in his farewell speech, after all of the conquering, after all of the battling in the promised land, they're there, they're occupying, Joshua talks about the survivors. And he talks about the foreigners amongst you, which helps us to know that these nations were not completely destroyed. They were actually living amongst the Israelites. And that's just another example of exaggeration language. So all that to say, the conquest of Canaan, God's people entering the promised land. Again, war was a way of life. And yes, it happened. And it happened frequently. But the conquest of Canaan was probably a little less dramatic and widespread than what we sometimes figure when we read scripture and you have to take into account this exaggeration language. All right, number three, judgment from Yahweh, a last resort. It's a last resort. It's not like Yahweh is sitting up in heaven with a smile on his face, ready to hit the smite button and destroy people. That's not exactly the picture that we have. Again, the overarching theme of scripture is that Yahweh is very patient with all people, giving them, and by the way, that includes us. So Yahweh is very patient, giving them and giving us a chance to turn back to him and to change our ways. Here's some examples of Yahweh's patience. Genesis chapter 15, God's having a conversation with Abraham. He's making a covenant, an agreement with Abraham that included, you're going to have land. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And you're going to be able to live and have land. That's coming for you. And here's what he says in Genesis 15, verse 16. After four generations, right? So after many years, 
your descendants will return here to this land. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. So after many years, the sins of the Amorites had not reached its limit. And I believe it didn't reach its limit at this point when God is having this conversation with Abraham, when Yahweh is discussing the covenant agreement with him, that that hadn't reached its limit yet with the Amorites because Yahweh was being patient with them, giving them a chance to turn and look to him. Another example, God has an interesting conversation with his people in Deuteronomy chapter 9 when they are about to enter the promised land. So you've got Genesis 15. They're not there yet. God says to Abraham, you're going to have the land, but I'm giving the inhabitants of the land right now, particularly the Amorites, I'm giving them time to repent and to change. Well, here we find in Deuteronomy chapter nine, they're about to enter the promised land. And here's what God says. After the Lord, your God has done this for you. Don't say in your hearts, The Lord has given us this land because we are such good people. No, it is because of the wickedness of the other nations that he is pushing them out of your way. That's a phrase to remember because often we find that there is more pushing out of the land than what there was destroying. So no, it is because of the wickedness of the other nations that he is pushing them out of your way. It is not because you are so good or have such integrity that you are about to occupy their land. The Lord your God will, here's another phrase to remember when we think of the Canaanite conquest, the Lord your God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness. So going back to Genesis chapter 15, Remember that God's people spent hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt. During that time frame, I believe God was giving the inhabitants of the land an opportunity to change and to repent. They didn't, but yet God was very patient with them. He gave them many years to turn. I think it brings up the question, how evil were they? Right? If it says, you know, their wickedness has come up to my attention and and now I have to act. So how wicked were the Canaanites? Well, scholars tell us, catch your breath and cover the ears of any small children in the room if you don't want to hear this, them to hear this. Scholars tell us that the Canaanites were involved in child sacrifice, incest, and bestiality, just to name a few. The Canaanite cult involved male and female prostitution as well as human sacrifice. Some icky stuff happening here. And I think God said, I'm all done. I'm all done. I've given them many opportunities to turn to me hundreds of years. This is getting really icky here. And I'm all done with the mess. Again, God is patient, but he is just. Number four, I already mentioned this in relationship to Deuteronomy chapter nine, but driving out, is more common language than destroying in scripture. God moving people out to move his people into their promised land. That was much more common than destroying. Here's something else that I discovered in my research. Non-combatants were given the opportunity to remove themselves from harm's way. And that's something Yahweh provided over and over again for non-combatants, giving them the opportunity to be safe. 
Number five, if Yahweh were racist, he wouldn't punish his own people. And I think this is really an interesting point. One of the things you discover in the Old Testament is that God often got upset with his own people over sin and oppression and injustice and evil. And what he would do is he would bring in outside countries and outside people groups to take his own people out of the land and to take them away as captives. And he would do that in order to get them to look back to him. I think it's fair to say that if Yahweh were racist, he would not do that to his own people. He would leave them alone and just punish the other nations. But yet over and over again, we find God, after giving his own people many opportunities to turn back to him, he was patient with his own people as well. But when that was exhausted, he would use outside countries to put pressure on his own people. If Yahweh were racist, he wouldn't punish his own people, which helps us to know this about Yahweh. He's concerned about sin. That is the primary issue. He's concerned about sin in his own people's lives as well as all of our lives. And God is patient, giving us time to come back to him, but he is also just. Number six, a number of Israel's battles on the way to and within Canaan were defensive. When you read in scripture, one of the things you discover is that they were often attacked. And so they had to respond to that. They had to fight in order to survive. Again, war was just a way of life in the ancient Near East. And many of the battles we find written about in scripture were because God's people were being attacked. In one case, Israel even offered peace to a foreign king and he refused that peace offer and instead turned around and attacked them. And of course, they had to defend themselves. Finally, number seven, love the sojourner. It's a command in scripture. When you think of the different people groups that are talked about in scripture, if Yahweh were racist, if he thought one group was superior to another, he would not say anything like what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Here's God speaking. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners. Really a remarkable verse in the Old Testament. Here's God looking at his people saying, you too, here's the deal. Here's what I want for you. You too must show love to foreigners. And here's why. For you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Don't forget where you came from and what I did for you. So you too, you must show love to foreigners. Now, did Israel always live up to that command? No, no, and that's recorded for us as well. It's what makes the Bible such a great story. We get the good and the bad and everything in between. It's all here for our learning. So did Israel always live up to that command to love the foreigners among you? No, they didn't but I don't think we live up to all of God's commands either. And so it's an opportunity for us to evaluate our own lives. 
Let me share three takeaways with you. Number one, recognize that all people are made in the image of God and he extends salvation to everyone. It's kind of going back to our big idea. Your best spiritual year involves recognizing that all people are made in the image of God. And we can add to that, at least in terms of our own understanding, that he, Yahweh, he extends salvation to all people. So I would posit that if we just got that right as followers of Yahweh, as individuals who have trusted in Jesus alone to rescue us, if we just got this right, that we recognize that all people are made in the image of God and he extends salvation to everyone, if we looked at all people that way, Here is a person made in the image of God. And if that's God's view of them, why should I hold a lower view? What moral authority do I have to think of an individual that is different from me as anything other than a person made in the image of God and he has extended salvation to them? God loves them dearly. Yahweh cares for them deeply. And we need to do the same. If we just got this right, as followers of Yahweh, as believers in Jesus, I think we would see a lot of things change when it comes to racial reconciliation. Number two, promote reconciliation every chance you can. Okay? I want to call Valley Point Church to this. Where we live, work, and play. Let's promote reconciliation every chance that we can. And one of the things that I'm coming to grips with when it comes to all of the racial tension that surrounds us is I sometimes wonder if I don't speak up enough. And perhaps that's your challenge as well. Often we think of that as it's somebody else's problem or that's over there. I'm fine. But I think we all have to look deep within and say, every chance I get, I have to promote racial reconciliation. How do you do that? Let me share two key words, all right? Compassion and hospitality. Compassion and hospitality. Let's look at people with different eyes. Let's be filled with compassion We may not be able to understand everything, and that's okay. We don't have to. Let's just extend compassion at every turn. And hospitality, eat with people, all right? Like food is wonderful, and it helps us get along with everybody. And so take somebody out to eat, share a meal, be hospitable. That's a biblical thing, by the way. We're called to that. And so hospitality and compassion, this will help us to promote reconciliation. By the way, I think it's fair for all of us to evaluate where we may be on the spectrum between being a racist, and maybe you feel that way and you recognize that about yourself and you know that's a problem, or maybe you'd put yourself way over here in terms of, I'm a person who is a reconciler, or maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Maybe you lean towards racial reconciliation, or maybe you lean towards acts of racism, wherever you find yourself. Let's dig deep and promote reconciliation every opportunity. 
Compassion and hospitality. All right? Number three, and finally, protect the weak. Protect the weak. I think it's what Yahweh would want. And if we do this, if we recognize that all people are made in the image of God and that he extends salvation to all, no one's left out of that. If we promote reconciliation at every turn with compassion and hospitality, and if we do our very best at protecting the weak, I believe we will see good things and racial reconciliation occur in our lifetime. Is Yahweh racist? No, I don't believe so. There are some tough things that are found here. But when we look into context and culture, we discover that God is very patient. He's very patient. War was a way of life in the ancient Near East. But yet God gave opportunity after opportunity for people to turn to him. And he concludes by saying, love the sojourner, the foreigners among you. Protect them. Be racial reconcilers. Father, we're thankful for some time in your word today. We've looked at a multitude of passages. Some of them are disturbing that make us question and wonder who you are and what you're doing. And some have walked through those passages and turned away from the Bible. Some have even used them as proof texts that God is racist or he's into ethnic cleansing. God, I think when we carefully evaluate context and culture, we find a different story and that you are a God who loves all people. And we may not be able to reconcile all of the things that we've read, but we can seek to understand, and so that's what we're doing. As we stand before you, I don't believe you're a moral monster at all. You're a good God who loves people, but you also care about sin. And that's an offense to you. And so, God, I pray that as we respond to you now, that you'd help us to look within. And if we need to confess, that we would use this time to do that. That we would come clean before you. And whether that's about racism or anything else that might be in our lives that is an offense to you, God, help us to be willing to address that right now. And God, I pray that you'd help all of us to walk out of here in just a moment and go to where we live, work, and play. Help us to protect the weak and be reconcilers, extending compassion and hospitality at every turn. Use us to change our corner of the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you call Valley Point Church home or would like to make a donation, please go to valleypointchurch.com slash online giving. If you're in need of prayer, we would love to serve you in that way. Send us a message at prayer at valleypointchurch.com. Be blessed.